Well, good morning. I'm Elizabeth Melvin. I'm on the women's shepherding team. This morning I got to be in the Hester family band, so it's fun to be up here with them, and I'm going to be reading the scripture. It's in your bulletin. It's Exodus 16, verses 1 through 5, and then verses 22 through 30. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning, as Moses commanded them. And it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain, each of you, in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Well, this morning, we are continuing in our sermon series on the book of Exodus. And if you were listening, the passage that Elizabeth just read is one that's pretty familiar and fairly famous. And I feel like I say that every week, and I do because they are. Uh, We've heard stories of the burning bush, the Passover, Moses parting the Red Sea, and then just this passage right now, God bringing bringing manna to his people in the wilderness. These are significant stories. They're so significant that movies have been made about them, so you don't even need to go to church or be a Christian to have heard them before. But make no mistake, they are a major part of the church, and not just the Christian church. The story of the Exodus is part of three of the five major world religions, Christianity, Judaism, as well as Islam. These are supernatural events, incredible miracles, but we've heard them so many times we can miss out on just how amazing they are. And not only are we at risk at missing out on the enormity of these acts of God, but because we don't really slow down enough to pay attention to what is happening, we can completely miss out on what God intends in them for us here and now. As I was preparing for this morning, I discovered this for myself because I've grown up in the church all of my life, right? I'm a paid, compensated Christian. I'm a professional Christian. I went to seminary. I've studied this stuff, but I've really, really not ever paid attention to it. I've heard it dozens of times, but I've missed out on very important details of the story. Now, here's what I mean. 
In our passage, we're told that Israel has gone into the wilderness or the desert of sin. Now, don't confuse that word sin with our English word sin. It's called the wilderness of sin because it's in the region of Sinai. But they're in the wilderness, they're in the desert. But here's what I have missed all this time. Why are they even there? Why are they in the desert? Why are they in the wilderness? Because God set them free from slavery to take them into the wilderness. Remember, God would lead his people during the day by a cloud and during night by a pillar of fire. And so anywhere they went, they followed him, and he led them directly into the wilderness. You know, the promised land, Canaan, wasn't that far. But God seemingly took them on a detour into the wilderness. Why? Why did he do that? Well, Moses tells us in Deuteronomy, where he wrote this. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord, your God, has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So God sent his people into the wilderness, into the desert, to humble them and to test what was in their hearts. Now we hear the word tests, and we think about tests that we have taken or that some of you are taking in school. You get enough right, you pass, you get too many wrong, you fail. You know, you compare how you do to your buddies and how others do as well. But that isn't the kind of testing that God is doing here. And it's not the type of testing that he does with us. The testing of God is more like a litmus test that reveals who and what you are, what you're made of. God sends his people into the wilderness to see if they would obey him, to see if they would trust him, to see what was in their hearts, especially during hard seasons. And it's not only for God to see, but for Israel to see as well, to have an accurate picture of who they are when times get tough. There's a great podcast I came across a years ago called The Place We Find Ourselves by Adam Young, and the first episode was called Why Our Stories Are Important. And he makes the point that our lives are stories, they're epic stories. And like all great stories, there's three parts to stories. There's characters, there's settings, and there's plot twists. And so the characters are people in our lives. Family of origin is huge. It could be coaches, teachers, or pastors that have influenced us, good or bad. Settings are places that we grew up. It could be our home, or it could be our schools, or our churches, or a setting could be even that place that you remember something that happened to you significantly, that you vividly remember every detail of the place that it happened, a good, again, good or bad. And plot twists are things in our lives that we're going down a direction, and then life takes an unexpected turn. And what he said, it was interesting, he said, these plot twists are disorientations. And it's in these times of disorientation that we learn what we are made of and what we value. Well, needless to say, Israel is disoriented. God told them, I'm going to rescue you out of slavery, and I'm going to take you to a land that is your own, and it will be a land flowing with milk and honey. But instead of being in this land of luxury, they find themselves in one of desolation. And again, God led them there. You can imagine what they must have been thinking. You delivered us to this. This isn't really what we were expecting, and it's not what we had in mind, and you did this to us? I thought you were our good God, and I thought we were your people. He led them into the wilderness to reveal what they were made of and what they value, and at the end of the day, God wanted to show them that the thing that they valued was themselves. 
that they valued themselves more than they valued God. We're going to see repeatedly, they obviously and blatantly did not trust him. And it's in the wilderness, it's in the desert, that God would begin to change this very thing. Dr. Dan Allender wrote this in his book, The Healing Path. Our spiritual journey must lead through the desert or else our healing will be a product of our own will and wisdom. It is in the silence of the desert that we hear our dependence on noise. It is in the poverty of the desert that we see clearly our attachments to the trinkets and baubles we cling to for security and pleasure. The desert shatters the soul's arrogance and leaves the body and soul crying out in thirst and hunger. In the desert, we trust God or die. Now here's the tough and hard reality. What was true for Israel is true for us. And so many of you know this. That at times, God leads us into the wilderness. Times of disorientation to reveal the things to which we cling to and that which we value, begging the question, do we trust God? Even in the midst of confusion and disorientation. Now, I don't want to sound insensitive given the heartache that so many of you are enduring and given the tragedy that happened in Nashville on Monday. A terrible crime that has left devastation and heartache. And I don't know about you, but I prayed, God, why did you allow this? You can do anything you want. Why did you do this? And I wish I had answers, but I don't. And I know there are broken hearts that want answers, but they don't have them. But we can know certain things to be true. First, we can know that when God created the heavens and the earth in his perfect state, he didn't create deserts. He didn't create places of desolation and death. Our earth was paradise. And after creating it, God pronounced it as good. But when God, or excuse me, but when Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, we're told in Genesis 3 that the earth became cursed. It became a place of thorns and thistles, of dust and death. Creation was shattered and paradise was lost. But we can also know this. In John 11, when God walked this earth in the person of Jesus Christ, when he faced the death of his friend Lazarus, we are giving one of the greatest gifts to us in times of tragedy. We read, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid them? And they said, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Now that doesn't fully get at what's happening. Nashville pastor Scott Sauls wrote on this very thing this week regarding his city's tragedy. And this is what he said. But the Greek for this phrase is much more forceful than this. The literal meaning is that Jesus was furious, likened to a raging bull with flaring nostrils who was about to rush, attack, and trample its prey under heavy and insurmountable feet. That is who Jesus is concerning death. He is not passive. Far from it. He is an angry, trampling bull who will trample over death and restore all that has been lost. The bull of heaven has big, heavy, stampeding feet. The lion of Judah has piercing, death-defying teeth. And defy death he has. And defy death he will. Well, when he does, what will happen? 
Well, I'm not going to read it this morning, but I would encourage you at some point to go and read the encouraging promises from Isaiah 35. Because we are told that there will be springs in the desert, springs of water in the thirsty ground, and the burning sand will turn to a pool. Our cursed world of death and desolation will be undone. It will be redeemed. And not only our world, but our lives and our hearts as well. Because as the Apostle John tells us in Revelation, he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Make no mistake, one day Jesus is going to come, and he's going to make everything sad come untrue. But until then, our lives will be wilderness journeys. Lives of disorientation, confusion, heartache, and pain. And so in the meantime, the question is this, and it's the same question that Israel was presented with, do we trust God? Even in the midst of our pain, do we trust Him? Because here's the reality. If we don't, and this world is all there is, if that's it, if it's just this world and this world only, with no promise of healing and redemption, we have no hope, zero hope. But there's something in our hearts and in our lives that tells us this isn't it. There has to be more. Much like Israel, we have a hunger for something else. And we know we need to fill it. There's a spiritual hunger in every single one of us, a hunger for more than our desert journeys. But what do we do with the hunger? How do we feed the hunger that drives us in so much of what we do? Well, in Israel, we can see. We can see our defaults, and we will see that it's not normally trusting God. So let's look again at verse 2. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So the first thing Israel does in their grumbling and complaining is they begin to live life in the rearview mirror, longing for the quote-unquote good old days. They said if we could only be back in Egypt, where we sat by the meat pots, which sounds disgusting, just for the record, and ate our fill of bread. But here's the irony and the thing that we have to realize. Think of what life was like for them back in Egypt. They were slaves. Sure, they may have had more food, but that's because it was sustenance for their labor. They have completely idealized what was a terrible life, one of slavery, oppression, and genocide. And here's the thing, they are longing to go back there. And we do the same thing, because I don't know about you, but I have found, my, found myself, in light of the events on Monday, wishing that my kids grew up in the world that I grew up in rather than the world that they are growing up in currently. When things like Monday morning, morning didn't happen, or at least maybe we just didn't hear about them. But the reality is, the childhood, my childhood, and the world I grew up in, it wasn't perfect. And frankly, our children, my children, have a lot of really good things, great things that I didn't have. I didn't even have a remote control to my television, right? But they do. There are so many things about this world that are better than it was 40 years ago. 
But when we're in the wilderness, when we're disoriented, we are prone to, instead of trusting God in the present, we long for days when it was easier, even if it wasn't. This is why people in active recovery, when in their wilderness, will often relapse. In recovery, there's an acronym that is H-A-L-T, HALT. And if you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, you are susceptible to run back into the slavery of your addiction. Now, I'm not sure that Israel was lonely because there was over a million of them. We have just seen, though, that they are angry. They are about to enact mob justice. Um, We know that they are hungry. We just read that. And they must have been tired because they've been going through a lot. And so, like addicts, they too want to run back into their slavery, thinking that their fractured past was better than their inconvenient present. But there's something very important we have to remember about our past. And C.S. Lewis wrote on this very thing. He said, These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. What Lewis is saying here is that the good old days aren't actually the good old days, but they are reminders of things we haven't experienced, places we haven't yet visited, a far-off country that will be our forever home. Israel thought they were longing for life back in Egypt, but in reality they were longing for the life that they will have in the promised land. And here's what we have to remember. I'm not talking about Canaan. I'm talking about their forever home, our forever home with God in heaven for all eternity when our desert journey is completed. And so not only in our grumbling and our complaining like Israel are we prone to romanticize our past, but there's also a temptation to run into the future. And we're going to see this when God gave the manna. God tells them, every morning I'm going to give you bread from heaven and you are to take just enough for that day. I will provide more for tomorrow. Don't collect more than just for today because if you do, it will turn bad. But on the sixth day, gather twice as much so that you can rest on the Sabbath. Very clear instructions. But how did Israel respond? This is Exodus 16, 19 through 20. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. So think about what is happening here. God says, I promise you, I promise you, I will give you enough for the day. And then the next day, I will give you enough for that day. But do they believe him? The God of the universe who just set them free from slavery, they don't. Do they trust him? They don't. They think their survival is contingent on their ability to collect as much manna, as much bread as possible. And don't we do the same thing? That if we get as much bread as possible, as much money as possible, we'll be fine. I can tell you in this city, that is the very culture that we live in. Accumulation 
and affluence, thinking that if we just had more, more bread, more money, then we wouldn't have to worry about anything. We look to our bread, our money for safety. And I know this because I sadly do it. That is the world I live in. And the problem is when we live in that world, we are told that our money enslaves us. And maybe you know that to be true for yourself. You can't work enough. You can't turn it off because you have to be more because your survival, your safety depends on it. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 6. He said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, I almost didn't include that verse this morning because it is such an indictment on my very heart. Jesus plainly said, you will be devoted to one and despise the other. And what am I devoted to? Based on the amount of anxiety and sleep I lose over finances, I don't like the answer. I don't like what that tells me. I was texting Elizabeth this week about reading the passage, and this is what she texted me. I really do love the manna passage analogy to trying to hoard control, resources that ultimately go bad and turn into worry, anxiety, etc. When she wrote that to me, it hit me like a ton of bricks because of how clearly she described the heart storms that I have daily and nightly. So think with me for a minute and have the courage to be honest. What are you devoted to? And what do you despise? How is your anxiety level? Are you able to rest in God's provision? And I am speaking to myself as much as I am speaking to you. Can we rest? Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough worries of its own. But instead, rest in him. As one commentator wrote, One of the ways in which we demonstrate our trust in God is in our ability to rest. We can rest because we are trusting God to provide. Let me turn that around. If you can't rest, if you're always busy with your work or your family or your ministry, it's because you're not trusting God. You're trying to secure your own future or create your own identity or provide your own justification. You can make excuses, but that's all they are excuses. Now, that's hard to read for me, and I hope it's hard to read for you too, but here's the good news. We're never left to ourselves in the gospel. We're never left to figure it out on our own. We can trust God. It's actually possible. I can rest in him. You can rest in him. We can rest in him no matter our circumstances, but how do we get there? In our wildernesses, in the midst of chaos, confusion, and disorientation, how can we move from trusting poorly in ourselves to trusting in him, moving away from trying to control the situation to letting him handle it? How can we actually rest? Well, we need to talk more about the manna. We said all along in our study of Exodus that all of these events point to something greater than themselves. Think about the Passover, and we noted this that it actually points to the greatest Passover, the great Passover where Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, was slaughtered for our sins 
And if we live our lives under the blood of the Lamb, then we too will be passed over. God's judgment will pass us by and we will be set free from our bondage to sin. And we've seen this pattern over and over again, and we're going to continue to all throughout the book of Exodus. And so that being said, the manna points to something else as well. But what is it that the manna points to? I heard a story once about a Sunday school class, and the teacher looks at the student and she goes, okay, boys and girls, I've got a question for you. What lives in trees has a bushy tail and stores and collects acorns for the winter? And a little boy raises his hand and he goes, well, it sounds like a squirrel, but I'm going to say Jesus. Well, now the Sunday school answer is actually correct. Um, and we know this because Jesus himself tells us that it's about him in John 6. And this is what he wrote. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Commentator Philip Ryken pointed this out. He said, nevertheless, the bread taught people of, excuse me, the bread taught people, excuse me, to look to God for their sustenance and salvation until he sent the true and living bread from heaven. That bread came in the person and work of Jesus, who offered his body on the cross to give life to the world. The meaning of the manna is that all we need is Jesus. I heard it said one time that we will never know that God is all we need until God is all we have. And that's what the manna reveals to us. Well, how do we do it? If he is our sustenance, if he is given as our daily bread, how do we feed on him like he said? Because it sounds super odd. But the way to do it is the very same way that Israel fed on the manna in the wilderness. In Deuteronomy, Moses told us that the meaning of the manna was to teach us that man doesn't live on bread alone, but every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And we know that God's word is scripture. And in feeding on his word, we actually feed on Jesus. And so we need to remember this, that God provided manna every day. It was their daily provision for survival. Collecting it was the first thing they did every morning. And we daily need the bread of God in the person of Jesus Christ, regularly going to his word to be nourished by his gospel. For you, like the manna God gave in the desert, maybe you should do it first thing in the morning. But here's what we need to remember. They didn't just eat it in the morning, but all throughout the day. I'm a big believer that the best time of day for you to have a quiet time or to study God's word is when you're awake. It does not have to be first thing in the morning, but I know this, when I start my day with God's Word, instead of sports or social media or the news, I enter my work day more trusting of God with a restful heart. I'll make a plug here, I've done it before. I've recommended the app Lectio 365, and it starts your day with Scripture and ends your day with Scripture and prayer as well. And it's a great way to feed on the bread and the Word of God every day. And don't miss this, and it actually wasn't in part of the passage that we read, but one way we need to eat the Word of God and to study it is to do it in community. Let's look at verses 16 through 18 of chapter 16. This is what the Lord has commanded, gather of it each of you and 
as much as he can. You shall take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some, uh, they gathered some more, some, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. So this is fascinating. It's a miracle, but it's so easy to miss. Each person would go out and collect as much manna as they possibly could. Now, obviously, a 20-year-old could collect more than a 90-year-old, and a grown-up could collect more than a child. And after gathering the manna, they wouldn't take it back to their tent or to their home, but they would come together and they would pull it together. And then they would take an omer per person to their home. And I don't know what an omer is either, necessarily, but if you had four people, you gathered four omers. If you had five people, you gathered five omers, and so on. And for everyone, every day, it was the perfect amount. It worked out every day to perfection. They gathered the manna in community, and if they did it alone, they would die in isolation. And the same is true for us as we feed on God's word. It cannot be done in isolation. I heard a story years ago about a pastor that noticed that a member of his church hadn't been in worship for quite some time, and so he decided that he wanted to go visit the man to see if he was okay. And so he knocked on the door and the man invited him in. And it was a cold night and the man was sitting next to a fire by himself, warming himself. And so the pastor came in and he sat next to the fire, but he didn't say anything. And after a few minutes, the pastor took the tongs, picked up a burning ember and placed it to one side of the fireplace, out of the fire. And then he sat back in his chair, still silent. The lone ember's flame diminished, and eventually it died out. And before the pastor left, he went and picked up the ember, the dead ember, and placed it back in the middle of the fire. And immediately, it began to glow again with the light and the warmth of the burning coals around it. As the pastor was leaving, the man said to him, Thank you for your visit. I'll be back in church next Sunday. The same thing here can happen to us. We need to eat God's word in community or we too will grow cold and die. And this is a great place to do that. To come and study God's word together. Community groups are a great place to do that. Bible studies are a great place to do that. And that is one of the reasons that I love so much the men's and women's retreats here at Hope. To hear and read and talk about God's word together in community. Because we spiritually will die in isolation. That is guaranteed, but it's in community where the flames are rekindled in our hearts. And there is another way to consider and eat on God's Word together, as Reichen points out. There are many ways to feed upon Jesus. We feed upon Him as we study God's Word, which is all about our salvation in Him. We feed upon Jesus as we have fellowship with Him in prayer, and we feed upon Him in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, not physically, but spiritually, the physical bread of the eternal life that Jesus gives to all who trust him. I love that last sentence there. The physical bread of the eternal life that Jesus gives to all who trust him. Now here's the irony. He gives it to those who trust him, and by eating it, we will actually trust him more. It's cyclical to be reminded of the sacrifice that he made for us, the death that he died to bring you life, the blood he spilled willingly 
gladly to spare yours. The bread of heaven torn to pieces so that your broken life and broken heart can be put back together. And ultimately, this is how we know we can trust him. Because of the extent that he went to bring us back, to redeem his people because of his broken body for you. He loves you that much. Jesus told us in John 6, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, I want to be clear here, and I cannot overstate this. Coming up here in a few minutes and eating this meal is not what gives you eternal life. But in order to eat this meal, you need to have eternal life. If you look to Jesus, the bread of life, to satisfy the spiritual hunger that we have, this meal is for you. Even if inconsistently at times you run back into your slavery, but you know you're not condemned. You know you're not a slave anymore. It's so much easier to get people out of slavery than it is to get slavery out of people. And it is Jesus that does so, and it's come and taking, coming and taking this meal that reminds us that we are no longer slaves to sin, but we are children of God. This is a place to remember the gospel. And what is the gospel? It is that you are so sinful that the sin and your rebellion has demanded and required the death of God for your forgiveness. But you and I are so loved that he was glad to do it. It was the joy that was set before him. He loves you that much. Now, if that's not you, or maybe even if you don't think it's you, I would encourage you, don't take this meal yet. If you think that Jesus was just a good moral teacher or an example of self-sacrifice, but not the eternal God who came to this earth to set us free from our spiritual bondage, then don't violate your conscience by doing something you don't believe in. Don't be an imposter. Don't be a faker. Instead, keep your seat. No one will judge you. No one will even notice. But instead, I've included some prayers on the back of your bulletin that you can think through and pray through as you consider if this faith is worth having. We are told on the night before Jesus was betrayed that he took the bread and he broke it and he blessed it and he said, this is my body broken for you, given for you, the bread of heaven given for you every day. This is for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness and the remission of your sin. Take and drink. It's our practice here at Hope to come and receive the elements when you're ready. Um, we're going to play a song whenever you'd like to come down. We don't miss, dismiss by rows, but when you're ready, come towards the middle aisle take the elements back to your seat, and then once everyone's been served, we'll take them together. The inner eight cups are wine, and everything else is grape juice, and there's gluten-free bread in the prepackaged cup like the one I had there. And so let me pray for us, and AK, if you'll come down. Help. Jesus, when you were here, you said, when you were instructing us and your disciples how to pray, to give us this day our daily bread. And that's not monthly, that's not yearly. Um, it's just enough for the day. And as we've seen in this story of Exodus, you promised to continue to do that day after day after day. 
I pray that we would depend on you for our significance, for our sustenance, for our survival. I pray that we would do it together as we're going to do now, as we're going to come and take of your body and blood together in community. I pray in doing so that you would strengthen us and I pray that you would take this ordinary bread and wine and turn it into something extraordinary, your means of grace for our good and for your glory. In your name I pray.